The invitation seemed innocuous. A Chinese general asked if the 14th Dalai Lama would like to see a performance by a Chinese dance troupe. But when he was told to come to the Chinese military headquarters without soldiers or armed bodyguards, the Tibetans sensed a trap. After years of guerrilla war between Tibetan rebels and the Chinese soldiers in a land that China considered to be its own territory, the friendly overture seemed suspicious enough that, on the day of the performance, thousands of protesters surrounded the Dalai Lama's palace in Lhasa to keep him from being abducted, arrested, or killed. Over the following few days, the protests expanded into declarations of Tibetan independence and the mobilizing of rebel troops to fight the Chinese forces. The state oracle, the Dalai Lama's advisor, urged him to flee. So on March 17, in 1959, Tibet's spiritual and political leader, then 23 years old, disguised himself as a soldier and slipped through the crowds outside the palace he'd never see again. He embarked on a dangerous journey to asylum, crossing the Himalayas on foot, accompanied by soldiers and Tibetan cabinet members. They traveled only at night to avoid detection by Chinese sentries. Rumors later circulated among Tibetans that the Dalai Lama had been screened from communist planes by mist and low clouds conjured up by the prayers of Buddhist holy men. But until he appeared in India two weeks after taking flight, people around the world feared that he had been killed, according to reports. Back in Tibet, thousands died fighting the Chinese forces. According to the BBC at the time, all fighting age men who had survived the revolt were deported and those able to escape reported that Chinese troops burned corpses in Lhasa for days. It was the latest flare-up of the long-standing discord between Tibet and China, discord that endures today. Tibetans can still be arrested if caught with the writings or a picture of the Dalai Lama, their spiritual leader, recipient of the 1989 Nobel Peace Prize. And Chinese leaders continue to be outraged by the Dalai Lama's recent speculations that he might not reincarnate this time around, foiling Chinese plans to handpick a 15th Dalai Lama who would follow the Communist Party line. China's official version of the Dalai Lama's 1959 escape sees him as forced to flee due to a failed attempt on his part, quote, to maintain the serfdom in the region under which the majority of Tibetans were slaves leading a life of unimaginable misery, unquote. Tibetans tend to disagree with this retelling. So profound is the despair among some Tibetans that hundreds have committed suicide since 2009 by setting themselves on fire as they burn self-immolators, reserve their final breath to praise the Dalai Lama and denounce Chinese rule. This is Mark Winwood bringing you The Elegant Mind, Tibetan Life, Sciences, Mind Sciences, Tibetan Culture, Tibetan Buddhist notions for beneficial, wholesome living here in the West. Broadcast on KAPY Valley Radio 104.9 FM, serving the lower Snoqualmie Valley of Washington State and the communities of Duval, Carnation, and Redmond Ridge. 
This is a special broadcast of sorts in that we are focused on the Dalai Lama, His Holiness Tenzin Gyatso, the 14th Dalai Lama, celebrated on Friday, July 6th, his birthday. He is 83 years old, having been born in 1935. So he enters, for the benefit of us all, his 84th year of life on this planet. So we're going to spend this program, the extent of this program, talking about the Dalai Lama, who he is, what makes him special, if you consider him to be special. We're going to talk about his life and his beliefs, the hardships he's had to endure, and the beauty and wisdom that he shows everyone who is coming his way at any point in time. I'm going to share some of his words with you. Those words for this broadcast are being read by Kathy Adams. Kathy is my partner, my fiance, my uh, my inspiration. I just uh, I guess it's it's fair to say that uh, everything that that I'm doing, she's doing with me. We're in this together. I remember back to 2009 when Kathy first saw the Dalai Lama. She was fairly new to Buddhist ideas, Tibetan Buddhist practices, and and they were starting to resonate with her. We were living in Central Florida. We took a trip up to Emory University outside of Atlanta, where the Dalai Lama was visiting for a few days to participate in panel discussions and speak to the students and in various meetings. And we were sitting in the gymnasium for the very first of his appearances, and he came out. The ovation was overwhelming, and just a remarkable energy in, in the building as he, as he took his place. And, and I looked over at Kathy, and again, she had never seen him before. She just had this smile on her face, this big, broad smile on her face with tears, tears in her eyes. And that's the Dalai Lama. That's what he, that's what he can do. That's what this, the energy that he, that he portrays or shares or reflects, whatever it is, whatever it is that he does and however he does it, it was, uh, it was a great, it was a great moment and, and wonderful, wonderful discussions that took place over those days up at Emory. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Dalai Lama, a little introduction as to what he is and who he is. But before we do, or and before we do, here are some of his words as shared with you and as they will be throughout the broadcast by Kathy Adams. In Buddhism, both learning and practice are extremely important. They must go hand in hand. Without knowledge, just to rely on faith, faith and more faith, is good but not sufficient. So the intellectual part must definitely be present. At the same time, intellectual development without faith and practice is also of no use. It is necessary to combine knowledge born from study with sincere practice in our lives. These two must go together. A simple Buddhist monk just a simple Buddhist monk. The Dalai Lama often says this phrase and people usually smile, think he's being too modest, striking a pose of some type of humility, trying to contradict this obvious presence that he has of enormous, enormous charisma, radiant good humor, and wisdom, intelligence and wisdom. But if you read some of the many books he's written, if you learn more about him, if you talk to people who know him, you'll find out that he lives his life just as best as he can, according to the lifestyle of just what he says he is. He's just a simple Buddhist monk. 
well, maybe he's a special simple Buddhist monk. Uh, certainly, he is a Buddhist monk with multiple identities. The Dalai Lama, Tenzin Gyatso, he's a human being, of course. He's a male. He's the descendant of, of farmers and strong working women in the province, the Tibetan province of Amdo, in far northeastern Tibet, close to where Tibet meets Mongolia and China and Turkestan. Although she had no idea that he was the Dalai Lama, his mother dreamed of his incarnation as coming to her from somewhere in the southwest of Tibet, where Lhasa is located, in the form of a bright blue dragon escorted by two green snow lions. He often says green is his favorite color. And as a one-year-old child, when he first learned to speak, he reportedly would tell his parents that he had come from Tushita, in effect, Buddha heaven, and was going to go to Lhasa soon. So after a, uh, a human being, his next identity is that of a Buddhist monk, very famously, a very famous Buddhist monk, a person who's taken and maintains the vows of nonviolence, poverty, celibacy, spiritual honesty, and spends most of his waking energy in the pursuit of a personal enlightenment that is believed to last for all time. And this is an enlightenment that manifests to satisfy the self with unimaginable fullness solely to benefit countless other beings. He works on dissolving habitual egotism, including the rigidity of his human, sexual, and national identities. As a monk, he lives close to the bone and also strives to be a universal being. He's always working, constantly creating what he calls shaping his motivation. His working identity is a bodhisattva, a driven being who's dedicated all his lives to the attainment of perfect enlightenment, complete wisdom, and inexhaustible compassion in order to be able to help all other beings find freedom from their suffering. And although many consider him to be a emanation of Chinrisig, the Bodhisattva of compassion, and he certainly does seem to have kind of grown into that role, he does not hold on to such a self-image. He doesn't walk around saying, I'm a great Bodhisattva, or acting as though he's a great Bodhisattva. But here's what he does do, and here's what he does say. He says that his religion is the common human religion of kindness of love, of compassion, of universal responsibility. And he sees not just the Pope or the Grand Rebbe's or other religious leaders as his spiritual peers. He sees everyone as a spiritual peer. Every day he continues to labor to lead his people and fulfill his responsibility. His nation, the Tibetan nation, no longer officially exists it's been under severe genocidal pressure for over half a century. And it is a nation, well, if to whatever still exists as the nation of Tibet, such mortal danger that Tibetans and the Tibetan culture should be on the endangered humans list, if that list were to occur. For his Tibetan people, he's a statesman, he's a politician, a diplomat, and he does all of this as a refugee. He's a refugee in a third world country, India. He is a committed scholar. He's a prolific writer. He researches deeply philosophical, 
psychological religious literature of his civilization, and he also explores modern sciences and literatures. He continues to study with a variety of tutors, and he teaches extensively. He teaches advanced students in the Tibetan Buddhist monastic community, and he teaches the entire Tibetan population as well. He speaks to everyone. If you've ever had the opportunity to hear him speak, to attend any of his teachings, he speaks to all with clarity and sincerity, with a good sense of humor and an unfailing optimism. He is also an accomplished meditation master, a teacher of the esoteric traditions that his people consider to be the crown jewels of the Indian Buddhist tradition they have inherited and have done so much to preserve and refine and extend. His precise knowledge of the tantric worlds, the elaborate arts and procedures, his graceful gestures, his magnificent chanting, and his eloquent and profound explanations of the advanced Tibetan Buddhist meditative practices leave even veteran disciples in amazement. And if that's not enough, finally, he's a peacemaker for the world. He's a Nobel Prize laureate. He inspires world leaders, both political and religious, who have been fortunate enough to encounter him. His message to them never wavers. Do not settle for the harmful byproducts of blind institutional momentum. Take responsibility for the poor and the oppressed. Use good sense and goodwill to solve the problems that beset the world and do not ever give in to despair and cynicism while hiding behind your powers and privileges. The Dalai Lama is ready to be a good friend to everyone, even those who have harmed him and others, and he patiently offers the alternative of constructive dialogue as a balm for violence and prejudice. At the end of the day, perhaps the most succinct way to communicate what it is that the Dalai Lama offers is this. He is not only a simple Buddhist monk, but he is a magnificent person who can make us feel how utterly worthwhile it is to be a human being. Is he a Buddha? Who can say? I don't know. I'm not clairvoyant. The Lamas say he's a Buddha, and they don't lie. Whatever he is, I can tell you this. He's an awfully nice man. He's constantly on the public stage, and he's consistent. Everyone who meets him comes away touched, almost all in ways they have never in their entire lives been touched. To me, he seems to, I, well, he is the closest a human being can come to being pure love, equanimity, compassion, and wisdom. If anyone deserves the opportunity to rest, it is he, but he never does. And he chuckles and giggles and says, can a bodhisattva ever rest? Of course not. So to coin a Western phrase, let's just say he's the extraordinarily sweet and marvelous nectar that is the proof of the ancient pudding that is known as Tibetan Buddhism. And I'm sure he would chuckle at that. His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Dalai Lama. How wonderful that you have shared your life with all of us. We're talking about the Dalai Lama. Here are some more of his words brought to you by Kathy Adams. Whenever I meet even a foreigner, I have always the same feeling. 
I am meeting another member of the human family. This attitude has deepened my affection and respect for all beings. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks for sharing that with us. And in the voice of the words of the Dalai Lama himself, here's a short clip taken from an interview that he gave where he's asked about the effects on Dharma and the spreading of Dharma that have taken place as a result of his exile from Tibet. So let's listen in for a moment and hear what the Dalai Lama has to say about that. You said that, that leaving Tibet was, although unfortunate, you said it had some positive consequences for spreading Dharma. Do you still feel that way? Yes, yes, new opportunity to us learning sort of new, sort of new knowledge, and me personally, new knowledge through sort of personal contact with the practitioner or follower of traditions such as Christianity, Muslim, and Judaism, and different Hinduism, and Jainism, so on. And also very, very useful. Sort of learning more uh, from scientists, particularly in the field of about brain, about emotions, and cosmology, like that. So, to us, new opportunity to learn more from West or from other traditions. And at the same time, uh, to outside world, I think the better opportunity uh, to study what is Tibetan culture, what is Tibetan Buddhism. And previously, sometimes people get wrong information, sort of wrong sort of, I think, the concept. Tibet, something mysterious land, and with third eye, or, or some mask. <laughs> and, <laughs> and very sort of superficial sort of image, I think, image of Tibet or Tibetan Buddhism. That's the Dalai Lama speaking about his exile from Tibet. And, of course, along with him came not only Tibetan Buddhism and many, many Tibetan teachings and lamas and teachers and, and practitioners. And, but at the time, there were some great geopolitical prophecies that, that, were, that had formulated, you know, the story of the Dalai Lama escaping Tibet is, is a fantastic story. He, um, he escaped from Lhasa. As, as you've heard earlier, there was a reported assassination attempt that was going to take place. And dressed as a soldier with a, with a rifle slung over his shoulder with his uh, supporters, his family members, cabinet members, and some teachers, he, he escaped. And it took him quite a while they traveled at night to go through the mountains. He was in pursuit by the Chinese army. And Mao Zedong was apparently very concerned about the Dalai Lama getting out, getting into India, getting into freedom into India. He was really after after him. And when he found out, it's said that when he found out that the Dalai Lama had made it to safety, to sanctuary, across the border into India, that his remark was, then we have lost, then we have lost, indicating that he saw a significant turn of events by the Dalai Lama making it into sanctuary in India and all the ideas and, and people and energies and culture and practices and history 
that were going to follow him out from Tibet into the, the, the freer world. And that is exactly what happened as Prime Minister Nehru gave the Dalai Lama refuge in India in the Himalayan foothills. And for all the people who followed him out, all the Tibetans who followed him out, they were given sanctuary and schools were built. In fact, as the story goes, Prime Minister Nehru gave sanctuary to the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan people under the condition that they would maintain in India their culture, their education, their medical and astrological sciences. He didn't want a group of Tibetan people living in India, becoming Indians under Indian culture. He wanted that Tibetan culture preserved. He understood the beauty and the power and the strength of that culture. So from those early days in exile in India, which took place in 1959 or began in 1959, Tibetan Buddhism, as you may be aware, has spread all over the world. As an example of that, here I am sitting in western Washington state broadcasting a program over the FM radio, community FM radio waves on Tibetan Buddhist science, mind science. And here you are listening to this program, quite remarkable. And it can be argued, of course, we never know the course that history would have taken, but it can be argued this would never have occurred had His Holiness the Dalai Lama not escaped for his life and for the life of his culture and his people, not escaped from Tibet on that evening in March of 1959. This is Mark Winwood, and this is The Elegant Mind, Valley 104.9 FM Community Radio, serving Duval, Carnation, and the Redmond Ridge. So it's music time. And as you are aware, perhaps, each week we feature music from Bobby Vega. Bobby is a San Francisco Bay Area composer and musician. He's a uh, longtime friend of mine. And when Bobby heard that I was going to be doing this program, he very generously and, uh, and gracefully offered for me to use any of his music and he's got quite a catalog of music he's been playing for years with various people in the San Francisco Bay Area. So this particular cut that we're going to listen to now is called Until Then. And when I told Bobby, I was speaking to him this past weekend, when I told Bobby that I'm going to be doing this program and we're celebrating the Dalai Lama's birthday, he said, well, you have to play Until Then. And I said, how come? And he said, well... He said, that's a song that I wrote. It's a, it's a birthday song that I wrote for my dog, Maggie. Maggie's no longer with us, but I wrote that a few years ago for Maggie on her birthday. And playing on that cut with me is Steve Kimock playing guitar and Pete Sears playing the accordion, the squeeze box, the accordion. He said, so if you listen carefully, you'll hear at the beginning of the song, the beginning of the happy birthday song. Bum, ba, bum, bum, bum. And then the song goes off in its own direction. So I said, great, that's what we'll play. That's the song for this week. So, so happy birthday, Maggie, and happy birthday, Your Holiness, Tenzin Gayatso, the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet. 
I share with you Vega, Kimok, and Sears combining their formidable musical talents in the very sweet, sweet until then. Enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side. From one point of view, we can say that we have human bodies and are practicing the Buddha's teachings and are thus much better than insects. But we can also say that insects are innocent and free from guile, whereas we often lie and misrepresent ourselves in devious ways in order to achieve our ends or better ourselves. From this perspective, we are much worse than insects. Well, there's a humbling perspective.
from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, read to you by Kathy Adams. You know, one of the things that the Dalai Lama does, he really um, is very unafraid to break down, to break down perspectives and and self-centered, self-centered viewpoints and comparing our lives, the human life, the human motivation, the human intention to those of, of insects, which we, most of us clearly do not regard very highly in terms of uh, importance or relevance and to, and to say that, well, insects don't operate with anywhere near the guile or the deception or the manipulative intentions that, that we do, that humans do, is a fun and it's an interesting perspective to consider. You know, one of the aspects of Buddhist practice, anything we can use, any perspective, any idea, any notion, any, any knowledge that we can use to just begin to reduce our self-centeredness, our self-obsession, our sense of self-importance, our wonderfulness, our unique brilliance, any idea that we can use to begin to just lessen that a little bit will translate into a lessening of the causes of our suffering. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama is all over that uh, repeatedly. So once again, you're listening to The Elegant Mind. My name is Mark Winwood. The Elegant Mind is broadcast on weekend mornings, Saturday and Sunday, from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pacific Time on KAPY Valley Radio 104.9 in the lower Snoqualmie Valley of Washington State. We're also, at the same time, streamed over the Internet at www.valley1049.org. That's www.valley1049.org dot valley one zero nine four dot org so just a little review this is Dalai Lama Dalai Lama program Dalai Lama's birthday is on Friday or was on Friday depending on when you're listening to this on Friday July 6th he was born in 1935 so that makes this birthday his 83rd birthday. He now enters his 84th year. And just a little review. He was, once again, he was the son of a farmer in a small Tibetan village. And in accordance with ancient traditions, the dreams and visions of high lamas and Tibetan oracles eventually led a search party to him, to his home. And at the age of two, he successfully identified people and possessions from his past life and was officially recognized as the reincarnation of the 13th Dalai Lama. At the age of four, he entered the capital of Lhasa and was named the spiritual leader of his people. At 15, he became head of state. In 1959, as tension with the Chinese army reached a flashpoint, he fled to India, where he's led the Tibetan people in exile ever since. Looking back over his 60-plus years of leadership, he has much to be proud of. He's established a successful and stable government in exile and stood firm against a brutal regime. As the first Dalai Lama to travel to the West, he's extolled the virtues of nonviolence to millions, which has been a lifelong effort. It earned him a Nobel Peace Prize 
1988. As the spiritual leader of Tibet, he remains the personification of his nation's struggle, his nation's wisdom, his nation's beauty, and his nation's brilliance. As many of you are aware, there was a film that was made in 1997 called Kundun, K-U-N-D-U-N, Kundun, which is the word that the Tibetan people use uh, used for the Dalai Lama. Kundun translates in English to the presence. And this film, 1997, epic biographical film, was directed by Martin Scorsese and written by Melissa Matheson. Much of it was filmed not in Tibet, where the setting of the film is, but was filmed in Morocco because the Chinese government wouldn't allow Scorsese to film a story about the Dalai Lama. Um, the film is a, it's a linear um, chronology of events spanning from 1937 to 1959, and it begins with the search for the mind emanation of the recently passed 13th Dalai Lama. And the Lamas come, and they, as the story goes, and they find the young boy, and they identify him, and the young boy comes back to Lhasa. It's a beautiful film. It ends with the Dalai Lama entering into India as uh, in exile, as a free man, as an escaped leader of state entering into India. The music in the film is done by Philip Glass. It's really, it's a beautiful film. And the film writer was uh, Melissa Matheson. And Melissa interviewed the Dalai Lama. I'd like to share some of the interview. I'm going to have to read it to you, question and answer. She wrote the film and developed during the writing of the film, she interviewed the Dalai Lama much. In fact, the Dalai Lama approved the screenplay of the film, that uh, the screenplay that Melissa wrote. And she has become, in the years uh, ever since, uh, close to His Holiness Dalai Lama, friends with the Dalai Lama. And I'd like to share. It's an interesting interview. So Melissa asks, Let's start by talking about the day in 1950 when you became head of government in Tibet. You were only 15 years old, and the Chinese had invaded your country. How did you do? How, how were you able to, to do that? And the Dalai Lama said, it was a very, very difficult situation. When people asked me to take the responsibility, my reaction was, I am one who wants to follow the Dalai Lama traditions, which was to be enthroned at the age of 18. Age 15 is too early. Then they asked me, and they asked me again. A mountainous region in eastern Tibet, Chamdo, had already been taken over by the Chinese. There was a great deal of anxiety. So I took the responsibility. As a teenager, around 13 or 14, I was living in Lhasa. I had very intimate sort of contact with ordinary people, mainly the sweepers at the Patala Palace, as well as the Norbalinka, which is the Dalai Lama's summer residence in Lhasa. He said, I always played with them. I always dined with them. Got information from the servants as to what was really going on. So it was challenging, this, this boy at the age of 15, taking over the leadership of his country that had been invaded and was in the process of being occupied and with cultural genocide beginning to take place and, and just around the corner. 
So Melissa asked him, why do the Chinese demonize you by calling you things like a devil or a wolf in monks' clothing, in monks' robes? Is there a reason they speak about you in such archaic language? And the Dalai Lama said, generally speaking, such sort of expressions are childish. Those officials who use those words, I think they want to show the Chinese government that the Dalai Lama is so bad. And I think they are also hoping to reach the Tibetans. They want 100% negativity concerning me. So they use those words. They actually disgrace themselves. I mean, it's childish, very foolish. Nobody believes them. Usually with human beings, one part of the brain develops common sense. But with those Chinese leaders, particularly the hardliners, that part of their brain is missing. So, um, he's critical. His Holiness the Dalai Lama will be, will be critical, and he'll say what is on his mind. When Melissa asked him, does evil exist in the world, he said, and this is a, a constant theme of his and others' teachings, Tibetan Buddhist teachings, he says the seed of evil, from my viewpoint, is hate. On that level, we can say that everyone has that seed. As far as a sort of potential of murder is concerned, every person has that potential. Hatred, anger, suspicion. These are the potentials of negative acts. And then he says there is also the potential for mercy, forgiveness, tolerance. These also, everyone has this potential. Evil means that the negative potential has become manifest while the positive remains dormant. Those people who actually love hatred, who deliberately always practice anger and hatred, he says that is evil. Melissa asked him about the uh, murals in the Patala that depict important moments in people in the lives of past Dalai Lamas. And she says, your life has been so different from the previous Dalai Lamas. She asked, who and what do you imagine might be depicted in a mural of your life? And he, and he smiled and he said, ah, I don't know. Of course, my mother at a young age and then my tutor. He said, I never thought about this. That's up to other people. And then he goes on to say, the important thing is that my daily life should be something useful to others. As soon as I wake up in the morning, I shape my mind. The rest of the day, my body, speech, mind are dedicated to others. That is compulsory as a practitioner. And also that way I gain some kind of inner strength. If I'm concerned about my own sort of legacy, a genuine Buddhist practitioner should not think that. If you're concerned much about your legacy, then your work will not become sincere. You are mainly thinking of your own good name, selfish, not good, and spoiled. Asked if when his time comes, if he thinks he'll be buried at the Patala, he said, most probably if change comes and it's time to return to Tibet, my body will be preserved there. But it doesn't matter. If the airplane Amon crashes, then I'm finished. He's then asked about having said in the past that Chenrisig, the Buddha of compassion, of whom all the Dalai Lamas are emanations, 
had a master plan for the first and the fifth Dalai Lamas. Does he think that the past 50 years, the turbulent 50 years of Tibetan history, is also part of some sort of master plan? And he says, that I don't know. In the early 60s, before the Cultural Revolution, I met Chenrisig in one of my dreams at the Jokong Palace in Lhasa. There is a very famous statue of Chenrisig there. In the dream, I enter that room and the statue of Chenrisig is winking at me and asking me to come closer. And I am very moved. I go and embrace him. Then he starts one sentence, one verse. The meaning is, keep persevering. The continuation of effort in spite of any obstacle. You should carry all your work in spite of difficulties and obstacles. He says, at that time I felt very happy. But now, when I think of that, I think that was advice from Chenrizig saying, your life will not be easy. Many difficulties, quite a long period, but no reason to feel discouraged. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Happy birthday, Dalai Lama, once again. 83 years old on Friday, July 6th. Happy birthday to this precious, beautiful man who has offered so much, so much in way of, of teachings. And, you know, his words, everybody knows his about his chuckle. And some people who, who bother to listen to him, not just watch him, but listen to him and listen to him carefully, are very, very uh, taken, very impressed, and, and uh, awakened, in many cases, by his words, by his messaging. But perhaps the, the greatest, or one of the greatest gifts that the Dalai Lama has graced us with is his presence, his kundun, his presence, allowing us to see what a human being is capable of, the awakening, the enlightenment, the wisdom, the compassion, the peace, the confidence, the way of being where one is just fully, fully awakened and determined to share wisdom, to share goodness, to show what is possible with study and meditation and paying attention. He is an incredible role model, an inspirational role model, and one doesn't need to really even be that close to him. We just we just watch him, just watch the way he listens to people speak to him. Just watch the attention that he gives people, the patience and the respect that he carries with him, always, wherever he goes, whoever he meets. The 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet, Tenzin Gyatso. This is the elegant mind celebrating the birthday and the life, gratefully celebrating the birthday and the life of another elegant mind, the elegant mind, that is the mind of the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet. Remember that by the Tibetan notions of reincarnation, that this mind, Tenzin Gyatso's mind, current mind, has been the mind of each of the Dalai Lamas in succession, from the first up through the 13th and now the 14th. This is a mind of incredible experience, incredible karma, incredible wisdom, incredible elegance.
the Elegant Mind, the mind of the Dalai Lama, and the title of this program, The Elegant Mind, on KAPY Valley Radio, 104.9 in the lower Snoqualmie Valley of Washington State. Thank you again so much for tuning in. Here's some more from Kathy Adams quoting The Elegant Mind of the Dalai Lama. In explaining his greatest sources of inspiration, he often cites a favorite verse found in the writings of the renowned 8th century Buddhist saint Shantideva. For as long as space endures and for as long as living beings remain, until then may I too abide to dispel the misery of the world. Very nice. The Dalai Lama was interviewed by someone who I don't know who she is. I'm not exactly sure when the interview took place. I think it's fairly recent. And I've been able to figure out how to get a audio clip from that interview to be able to share with you here on the program. In this clip, the Dalai Lama speaks about compassion. He speaks about fear threats to society, same-sex marriage, climate change, and kind of a variety. What he, actually kind of interesting, what does he carry around in that satchel that he carries around everywhere he goes? So I'd like to play that interview for you now. And once again, I don't know who the interviewer is or where this took place, but, but here you have it. You speak a lot about compassion. What are three things people can do to show themselves love and compassion? Because it starts with self-love. Yes, self-respect or self-love, very important. Without that, impossible to extend to other. Entire seven billion human beings have same sort of feeling, want happy life. The secret thing is, we have this mind, you see, that uh, through our effort, through training, we can change our mental attitude. The destroyer of peace is anger, hatred, jealousy. Then uh, should investigate what is the opposite emotion. That's love, forgiveness. A lot of people talk about being confused, dealing with uncertainty, confusion, or fear. How do you deal with that? Fear, uh, some fear, realistic. Uh, because of that, because of that fear, uh, take some precaution, including hygiene for these things. Okay. Uh, then another fear, actually uh, not much uh, reasons or reality, but uh, mental sort of creation. Here, too much self-centered attitude, individual person. It's a little bit remain distance from other. That's the basis of fear, distrust, mm-hmm. distance, and distrust. Well, that's the basis of fear. What do you think the greatest threat our society faces today is? I think immediate violence, various level individual level violence, and then organized, or yes, organized, you see. You also talked a lot about climate change yesterday. Do you think that that is a 
huge impending crisis for the world? Oh yes, of course. Actually, uh, due to global warming, nature uh, disasters already started, already more disaster. Now this will increase. What are your thoughts? I just want to ask you about something huge that's been happening in the United States is a recent legalization of gay marriage. Do you have any thoughts on that? Since many years, so many people ask me that. Mm-hmm. Then I, I respond, yes, uh, individual people who have some religious sort of belief, then better to follow their own religious sort of uh, advice or teaching. Then those people who are not much serious about religion, then up to individual. If they, if, if they find that's more satisfactory way, okay. I saw you speak last year, and someone asked you what you carry with you in your satchel. Can you share that with us? Firstly, you see, one Buddha statue. Uh, Some candy? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, uh, and, and two or three pens. Like, pen. Uh, pen. People always seem to lose their pens. That is, I think, due to lack of mindfulness. Oh, <laughs> that's what's been happening to me all these years. <laughs> well, there you have it, the Dalai Lama talking about several different issues, including what he keeps in that, in that satchel, that satchel of his, a Buddha statue, some candy, some pens, and hand sanitizer. So he's a practical man. He's a monk. He's a simple, ordinary monk. He may be an enlightened being. He's certainly an awakened being, a realized being. He's the Dalai Lama of Tibet, and he's a practical man as well, based upon what he carries around in his satchel with him. You know, this, this Tibetan, these Tibetan mind sciences, life sciences, Buddhist ideas and practices, they're pretty catchy. You know, they're catchy. What, what I've seen in the, in the Himalayan hills of, of India, the Kathmandu Valley of Nepal, in, in Florida, and here in western Washington as well, is how these ideas, these perspectives have a way to energize and, and really motivate people to discover the nature of their own minds and, and therefore the nature of the entire universe. These teachings can illuminate one's path through life and as the Tibetans say, illuminate our mind's passage into its next life. So the Dalai Lama is the, he's front and center. He's the poster boy of these, of these ways. And, you know, he's, he's a wonderful man. And he doesn't just teach Tibetan Buddhism. He lives it. He embodies it. He communicates it. That smile, that, that, that simple beauty and profound grace that he carries around with him wherever he goes. Every day he touches people with this this, it's ancient, this ancient spirit, but it's alive. It is so alive. It continues to be so alive. So for all of you who are listening to this program, for all of you who come to our meetings in Duval on every other Thursday night, Longevity Foods, for those of you who, who listen to the webcasts that we do on Wednesday evenings talking about this man and these ideas, for those who read the things that we write and distribute, 
I, I thank you. I thank you so much for allowing me just the unbelievable privilege to share these ideas, to share this man, to be able to sit here in my own home, speaking into a microphone, and be able to, to talk about this man. Some of you may not have had the, the pleasure of, in, of encountering his story or his presence or his teachings, his inspiration for living a meaningful life on, on this planet in these difficult days, difficult times that we're all, we're all going through right now. You know, sometimes uh, the HHDL, we call him HHDL, His Holiness Dalai Lama, HHDL. There are so many dimensions to this man, and it is, it is such, a, such a pleasure to discover them, to hear them for ourselves. One thing that I would like to leave you with is something that the Dalai Lama says over and over whenever he's asked very frequently in his, in his public talks. He says that while he hopes he's able to communicate the, the principles, the key concepts of the Tibetan ways, the Tibetan mind sciences, Tibetan Buddhism, he hopes people are, are able to, to hear to hear these, to see these, and to think about them. But there is never, ever on his part, any desire to, to make more Buddhists. He, he says, he, we don't want, we don't need millions and millions and millions of new Buddhists, that he is not competing. These ideas are not competing with the ideas of, of the Christians or the Jews or the Muslims or the Hindus or or the Universalist Unitarians, or the atheists. He says that, that he, we're not competing. He's not competing for market share. He's not competing for a population explosion. All that he is looking to do in his life, with every moment of his life, all he's looking to do is improve the quality of people's lives, hoping that people will become more awakened, more enlightened, more confident, less fearful, more wise, more compassionate, more patient, more generous. Whatever their religious affiliations or secular humanist beliefs might be. So this is, uh, this is his way. He's a teacher. He's a role model for all of us. And I think the more that if you decide to look into him, to look into his life, there's lots of, lots of books, lots of videos that are available on the internet. And, and, uh, and please send me an email if you'd like to learn more. I can share many resources with you. You can send an email to me, Mark Winwood. Send it to theelegantmind at valley1049.org. Theelegantmind at valley1049.org. I will be happy to share with you, to answer questions, to uh, point you in the right direction if you're interested in learning more about him. He is 83 years old, he just turned 83, as you know. Happy birthday. He's 83, and he has severely cut down on his worldwide traveling schedule because he get, it's tiring, all the different time zones, and everywhere he goes, people are just trying to suck that beautiful energy from him. So he's, he's winding down in terms of his travels. So if you're interested in learning more, please be in touch. I'll be happy to share whatever it is I can with you. He's beautiful, and he is worthy of being shared among all of us. So thank you for tuning in to The Elegant Mind, underwritten by the Generistic Project here on 104.9 Valley Radio in beautiful summertime, Lower Stoquamie Valley. 
thank you and please take good care. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.